Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope everybody is having a great holiday weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street ended the week slightly down after a positive start to the year. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is warning that America will hit its debt ceiling on Thursday as House Republicans make clear they won't increase the borrowing limit without spending cuts, including to defense. The Federal Aviation Administration's note to airmen system collapsed last week, sowing chaos and underscoring the fragility of America's air travel system in the wake of Southwest Airlines' holiday meltdown. Beijing's global charm offensive appears to be paying off as Australia looks to rebuild trade ties that China itself frayed as Chinese stocks rebound on Wall Street. London will send 12 Challenger tanks to Ukraine, with Washington expected to follow with M1s as pressure grows on Germany to supply Leopard uh, tanks of its own. The first space launch from Britain on a Virgin Orbit rocket with nine satellites aboard sadly failed, and a new radar for the F-35 Lightning II fighter. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Unfortunately, our third regular panelist, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, will be unable to join us today. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace is sponsoring our air uh, and naval coverage. And Leonardo DRS, HII, and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium uh, last week outside Washington, D.C. A quick programming note. We are not going to be broadcasting tomorrow on Monday, but return on Tuesday with the very first episode of uh, the Defense and Aerospace Reports weekly air power podcast uh, with yours truly and our new contributing editor, J.J. Gertler, uh, for a program that is sponsored by GE Aerospace. Guys, welcome back to the program. Great to have you on and hope you guys are having a good weekend. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Happy Sunday, Vago. Great to be here. Uh, indeed. And a quick note to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters in a program that is now sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. The downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And as I mentioned, Starting next week, our new Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace and co-hosted by our contributing editor, J.J. Gertler, and yours truly. Ron, uh, give us your quick take uh, on the week uh, and how the group uh, performed. Uh, uh, you know, uh, B of A's head of equity and quantitative uh, strategy, uh, Sevilla Subramaniam, uh, has said uh, that she sees a 10% drop in corporate earnings uh, this year. Uh, and so a lot of folks are asking, okay, what does that mean for the group? Just talk to us sort of more broadly, right? Performance of the group uh, and how her statements should be interpreted and what they mean for the group as we look uh, for, uh, uh, you know, what her logic is, but also what she sees that folks should be paying attention to. Sure. So uh, a couple points here. I think it's instructive to look at how the market has performed year to date. And uh, you know, so we're very, very early in the year. So the S and P is up about five percent. So if you use that as sort of your benchmark, it's a risk on here. What do I mean by that? 
when you look at some of the worst performers for us last year, and you know they were they tended to be the SPACs. So if you look at across the coverage of of SPACs that we do, uh, let's look at just a selection of those names. Uh, Virgin Galactic's up 50%, Astro's up 35%, Rocket's up 30%, Rocket Lab, excuse me. Um, Terran Orbital's up 15%, Planet Labs is up 15%. Uh, when you look at the VIX index, it's as low as it's been in a year, right? And the VIX is a measure of um, risk, if you will, or appetite for risk. When you look at the larger cap names we cover, you know, so far this year, uh, the champ has been Boeing, it's up 10%. Uh, General Dynamics is down two, Raytheon's down two, L3 Harris is down five, Lockheed Martin's down six, uh, and Northrop's really been kind of crushed down 15%. And those were all the big winners last year, right? And except Boeing, right? So you're seeing this, this the things that underperformed last year outperforming so far this year and an appetite for risk. Uh, look at the business jet guys, Bombardier's up 12%, Embraer's up almost 15%. Uh, text trends down half a percent. Deso Aviation's down, down about 4%. Uh, WI crude, uh, WTI crude is about 80 bucks a barrel. Brent's about 85. Uh, the 10 years sort of settled in around 3.5%. So you, you, you've got that as a setup. And when you think about what, what Savita said, you know, a, a 10% drop in, in corporate earnings, that's based on what she's seeing in analyst forecasts. Because um, remember, Savita uses as input into uh, her work um, is all of our work, right? So if you look across the entire uh, Bank of America system, there's a you know a bunch of folks like me that do forecasts and so on and so forth, and that's that's what's you know driving you know what she does. Uh, and, and I think what what you're seeing there seeing here is um, positioning going into earnings, right? Just remember, nobody's reported yet, and earnings starts um, in earnest. This week, right? You're going to start to see numbers come out. Actually, late in the week, the banks reported, um, and and you know the, the the big U.S. banks tend to lead earnings. But as we go into next week and the following week and following week, you're going to see the whole onslaught of earnings. So people have positioned themselves. Investors have positioned themselves for a, a risk-on year. We'll see if that plays out in earnings, right? The the you know, the risk is people aren't positioned right. <laughs> that as we go into this this next reporting season, where companies will be talking about what they're going to see in calendar year 23 in much more detail than they have in previous earnings, we'll see if the market has positioned itself correctly uh, with regard to what companies will be saying. So I think this, this reporting season, if you will, is always important. But this year, it's particularly important because you've had this reversal in broad market positioning relative to where it was at the end of last year. What that means for aerospace and defense is we've seen a preference for commercial over defense, and so far, a preference for OEM uh, over aftermarket. Um, we'll see if that's right. Uh, there's still a lot of factors at play, or we've talked about many times um, on the podcast, the supply chain, labor, how deliveries can go, so on and so forth, and 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 we'll see how that that all plays out. And then and then one other thing I might add is this upcoming week. Uh, so as we go Monday, Tuesday of this week, um, the MLK holiday notwithstanding, there's a big conference, two big conferences actually going on in Dublin, Ireland for aircraft finance and with the aircraft leasing business. So there'll probably be a bunch of headlines that come out of uh, Dublin for the first half of the week talking about how the aircraft financing industry is feeling 
um, relative to, you know, where they felt a year ago, six months ago, so on and so forth. So um, the next couple of weeks will be, I think, just chock full of news for the market and news for our space. And then on top of that, all the uncertainty and noise coming out of the hill, particularly out of the house, hasn't done any wonders for defense because people are scratching their heads. Are they really going to cut? Are they not going to cut? Are we going to have a CR? Are we not going to have a CR? Uh, So on and so forth. So, you know, the market generally doesn't like uncertainty. They see uncertainty in defense. They see more certainty in commercial and they're in the backdrop of a risk on environment. Um, And um, obviously we're seeing some of the economic figures better. European economic numbers are looking better, right? I mean, a recovery was looking at 25. I think the ECB uh, made a note as we go into Davos here that the outlook uh, might be um, a little bit uh, better. You you mentioned um, the uh, Washington environment and and, uh, on Friday, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Janet Yellen said that America's likely to hit its borrowing ceiling or will hit its borrowing ceiling uh, on Thursday. Obviously, there's an enormous number of things the central bank can do to stretch that out on our Washington podcast. We've regularly been talking about the crisis being a little bit uh, later uh, in the year. She's obviously flagging uh, the the issue uh, early. And the, the last time we had this kind of hardness uh, that involved uh, the words Freedom Caucus on the Hill, we ended up with the Budget Control Act that took half a trillion uh, dollars automatically out of defense over the course of uh, a decade. Um, thankfully, we're on the other side of that. But there is a concern, right, year, full, full year CR, we, uh, continuing resolution. We've talked about the impact on all manner of companies, particularly accentuated on the uh, services side uh, of the equation. And we heard from HII CEO, President and CEO Chris Kastner on that uh, last week. Um, Ron, what is, you know, are you, are you hearing any questions, right? I mean, how many, uh, what kind of waves did Yellen's comments uh, make? Uh, Because, again, I mean, the expectation was that this was a debate that we were going to be engaging in later in the year. And then she comes up and says, hey, you know, we're we're actually going to start hitting that number sooner rather than later. Yeah. So so a a couple of comments there. I mean, her her comments came late uh, on a Friday going into a long weekend. Right. So I think it, you know, it largely flew under the radar uh, for the market. So we'll see when the market opens on Tuesday. Um, you know, what, how the market thinks about it. I've had some questions about that from defense investors, obviously, because they're more intensely focused about what's going on in the house. Uh, but broadly, you know, is the, is the, you know, the broader market um, contemplating that? I don't think so. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. I wouldn't be surprised if it drives some volatility. I would say, um, you know, kind of speaking for the market, which isn't my job, but I will anyway. Um, I don't think the market is really contemplating a U.S. debt default. I think if you were to ask nine out of 10 investors or 19 out of 20 or 99 out of 100, they'd say there's no way the U.S. will in the end would default that, you know, they're playing some sort of game of chicken. But um, and I'm not saying the market's right, but I, I would you know, venture a bet that that's that's where uh, the, the market psychology is on on the debt issue. And then sadly, this, you know, May or may not be the case, but broadly, I mean, uh, Yellen lost a lot of credibility in markets when she was on the bandwagon that uh, inflation was transitory and when it clearly wasn't. Right, so generally, kind of on in the market, you're as good as your last trade, and on that one, she didn't do very well. Although, you know, as you said, right, almost everybody um, who who really knows about financial markets knows that a debt default is sort of an unmodelable scenario, as you and I used to talk about a, a decade or more ago when all of this 
uh, talk uh, started. It was Washington, Wall Street getting unsteady that drove uh, at least for us to get a BCA. But it's interesting to me how much people have forgotten and how some in the defense uh, sphere, uh, certainly to the right of center, are like, hey, look, take a debt, debt default. It's a, it's a smaller problem than impacting defense spending, right? Uh, accept a debt default, as opposed to saying, no, the, the, the engine for uh, U.S. defense capability is actually its economy, its creditworthiness. And so, you know, th th that's just right. I mean, it's kind of nonsensical to say like, oh, you know, go with the debt default and just keep increasing defense spending uh, and cut domestic discretionary. Th that's not going to work uh, well, uh, ultimately. Um, uh, you know, you can't have one uh, without the other. Uh, I mean, would you agree with that, Ron? Right. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah. No, I mean, I don't. I don't think in the market psychology whatsoever, I mean, a U.S. debt default is sort of, you know, that would be a black swan, <laughs> right? Right. You know, I mean, that's usually, that's not on anybody's, you know, what they typically model, right? I mean, right. You know, Venezuela, maybe the U.S., no. Exactly. Um, but Richard, you've been very patient. I want to bring you uh, in uh, to this first, you know, commentary on sort of uh, the risk on environment we're on and what does it mean and and sort of what are the bright spots on the commercial side? Uh, it, you know, I mean, I think there are a remarkable number of bright defense spots, too, uh, even if uh, there are questions about where we go uh, budgetarily. I just want to get your oar in the water on that, because then I want to ask you about Boeing deliveries, FAA, and then get into a discussion on China and, and how. Uh, China's charm offensive may actually, you know, be be paying off uh, here a little bit because there are those who don't want to totally turn their backs on globalization. But I'm going to just go back to sort of the, you know, so so where's the positive in commercial? We're about to have one point, you know, more than a million Chinese are going to die, right? Be even Beijing is admitting there's sixty thousand dead, up from 30, 37, uh, which was a very plausible figure, as we all know. Um, you know, start, start us there and let's go from there. As Ron discussed uh, earlier, um, there does appear to be this uh, degree of concern about what's happening in Washington in terms of the defense environment. And while I'm not an equities analyst, as he is, it does seem like the overall sentiment is now turning towards the commercial side of the industry because that's where the ramp will be. And there's no question that, you know, things look really great for the next couple of years in terms of the commercial ramp, whereas defense might just be plateauing. And who knows, maybe if the uh, the, the so-called Freedom Caucus or whatever does actually get some traction or continues getting traction, there may even be cuts. So I understand the degree of concern there. Um, and of course, the China story is a very big part of that. Um, and this, of course, is a much broader, fascinating conversation. You know, I understand the fears of people who say, Oh yeah, well they're gonna they're gonna you know just lull us back into a sense of uh, you know a lack of caution and uh, they'll you know get them to get us to sell them the rope they'll use to hang us and whatever else and I understand that completely, um, but there are nevertheless positive commercial and market signs along with the political overtures, you know, the, the sidelining of one of the wolf warrior diplomats and, and, and the increasing transparency, which they're bringing to the COVID uh, resurgence over there. You know, I mean, there are basically two narratives, I guess, about China. One is that, you know, this is all just window dressing. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's all for show. And the other is, no, there's actually, there really still are Hu Jintao type reformers who, want things to be better and don't want to, you know, spend all their time, uh, you know, making bellicose noises and, and sending uh, aircraft and ships towards Taiwan. They simply want to get on with the commercial economy. 
and well, uh, but, la- it, but, but last week but last week was a big surge of aircraft that that did go over to Taiwan, right? I mean, their yes. attitude more, right? I mean, we can't, I mean, I, I, I know that there are a lot of people and this, this was a, a theme that was very present in the, in the B of A uh, conference uh, uh, last week or week before last was, hey, you know, I mean, they've been telling you for 30 years what they want to do. They sort of over the last couple of years were pretty hard about what it is they're going to do and we're going to make you do it. And then the whole world organized against them. And they were like, holy crap, this is really bad. Our domestic market's falling. We have a real estate bubble that's blowing up. Um, we have got a lot of people that are going to die. We better start doing some stuff to ensure, you know, and, and hopefully all of these other folks won't realize what it is we said. Heart, heart yeah. sign, right? Um, I mean, do, 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 we just, do we just go like, uh, you know, because I got to tell you, she has put in a lot of hard liners across, across the organization, right? So what, why? we should just sort of disregard all of this and just sort of be like, Hey, we're, we're all good now. Let's move on and, and make cheap semiconductors. No, of course not. You know, obviously you have to have both China's in mind. And, and of course there is no one China. There are multiple voices, just like there are multiple voices in the U S and, and, and multiple uh, impulses. Um, obviously, you know, standing up the China committee in the house this week led by, uh, you know, representative Mike Gallagher, you know, obviously that shows that we're continuing, you know, efforts to, to restrict their development. The Biden administration's effort on semiconductors is obviously continuing very strong, uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. But on the other hand, you have to be mindful that there are people over in China who are really just concerned with commercial opportunities and economic growth. They might be at odds. They might be the Jack Ma's of the world. Jack Ma being recently sidelined uh, from Ant Group. That's not a good trend. But, you know, you have to encourage voices like that. And meantime, it's it's not just, you know, superficial overtures. You look at the return of, of air travel. You know, the past few weeks have been incredibly strong for commercial air travel. In other words, the doubts we had about the consumer economy in China ever coming back, that maybe they would just encourage a new form of state-run Maoist thinking. Well, good news, there appears to be more of an emphasis on commercial activity and, and number the number of flights per day has uh, grown by about 250% over the past uh, couple of months. That's really welcome. Similarly, and of course, most notably, the MAX is back in service with China Southern, which is the big China fleet leader with the 737 MAX. They've got about a quarter of the 102 jets in country. And uh, that means, of course, that the gates are opening there. In other words, the idea of trading with them commercially while also being mindful of tech transfer and, you know, as Ron used to call it, tech war, which I I think has a degree of accuracy to it, the two can coexist. But the fact that there are these two impulses in China and two political directions doesn't mean we can't be mindful of one and be on guard against it and encourage the other and interact with it. There's no reason not to. For what it's worth, I'm, I'm not sure there are two Chinas. There's a China. They're just putting a very happy face on it because they realize that they're red, right. I mean, they they broke uh, the the hide and bide strategy, organized everybody against them. And, you know, Olaf Schultz going over there and saying, hey, pretty please, can we start doing business again? Because our whole industrial complex relies on you um, is part of the problematic nature uh, of this. I mean, again, Anthony Albanese, uh, Australian prime minister, you know, has sort of agreed like, hey, you know, yeah, let's let's start getting, you know, they need cement. They want to buy Australian wine. Uh, and it is it is our biggest market. And that's um, 
you know, I, I, I think, you know, and that's also, by the way, a national strategy criticism, right, that we're preparing for war and, and Beijing actually might be interested in preparing for war over Taiwan, whereas the way the Chinese might be doing this is, is different, blockade, coercion, uh, economic and otherwise. You know, at, uh, at Ron's conference the other week, Jeff Bialis made the extra excellent point that there is no degree of historical inevitability in China's actions. This one China narrative, it you know, it, it gets us back to every other mistake the U.S. has made about adversaries or potential adversaries over the last century. There is no inevitable timeline. Instead, there are things that can be done that are pro- productive and proactive and things that simply accelerate a bad spiral. And there's no reason that we can't take an appropriate level of guard that might even include arming or perhaps even stationing troops in Taiwan. You could be thoroughly aggressive on Taiwan, keep them from doing anything stupid while simultaneously engaging on a commercial and diplomatic level. There's the two reasons aren't the two impulses aren't contradictory. But, but I mean, I would argue they are right, because every dollar in trade that you do with China helps them build a military capability that is aimed and designed specifically against the United States. And in another era, we would have looked at, looked at that as being problematic. Is, is that uh, and, at all, vi- I mean, is that a viable strategy is the idea of, well, let's keep them poor because if they're gonna have any kind of viable economy, which they do now, yes, there's going to be a sufficient level of resources devoted to the military to make them into a major threat. It happens either way. It, whether they grow at 3% or 5% or 8%, it doesn't matter, it happens. So right. why not try to manage it? No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not saying don't manage it. I'm just saying that, you know, that it was sort of like doing trade, right? I mean, detente uh, with the Soviet Union uh, was to try to lower tensions. And, you know, when we were selling them grain because they couldn't feed themselves, they were giving us titanium. We were making it into spy planes and using it to spy on them, right? It, I mean, I, I, I get that. But there was an economic integration and we were sort of on our guard against the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union made it clear we want to destroy the capitalist bourgeois democratic states against us. I, I'm just saying, I, I, I don't think there are multiple Chinas. I think there is a China who Xi Jinping is in charge of that China. Uh, and like I said, every dollar of revenue they make is going into their military capability. Uh, and uh, or a lot of it goes to their military capability. They have a lot of other societal problems as well. I'm not making them 10 feet tall. I'm just saying for something more nuanced. And and Mike Gallagher's uh, committee is supposed to get to smarter China policymaking. Ron, I know because of bank policy, you can't uh, weigh uh, in on this uh, and certainly would have been good to have had uh, Sash here uh, right now because obviously European governments are also weighing uh, how uh, to move forward uh, with uh, China and some European analysts certainly saying, look, this new charm offensive, we have to be careful because at the end of the day, they are still uh, what they are, right? I mean, it's still a scorpion at the end of the day. So just you know, just be wary of that, uh, even if it looks a little bit cuddlier and friendlier. Um, let me ask you about Boeing's delivery numbers uh, and then Richard, uh, get your take on that. And also the FAA staff who, I mean, it was the note to airman system, obviously it was down only a couple of hours but it was down long enough to cause chaos, not just domestically, but globally, uh, because obviously anything that happens in the United States has a tendency of, of having knock-on uh, effects, certainly on the, on the wake of uh, Southwest. Uh, let's start with uh, the delivery numbers and get both of you to weigh in on them and what do you guys uh, think they mean? And, and it was pretty consistent, Ron, with what uh, you had been forecasting. Yeah, they they have Boeing on you know, 737, uh, 737 Max, 737s in total. Because um, there's some NGs in that that end up you know, in uh, conversions for other things. 
Um, the seven three seven numbers actually came in a little bit ahead of where Boeing. Boeing said they would. They were looking for uh, three hundred and seventy five for the year, and they came in around three hundred eighty plus or minus a couple. I forget the exact number, but they came in a little ahead of that. And then on on, on seven eight sevens, uh, they they delivered. I think it was ten in the quarter, which was I think a, a little bit ahead of what people were thinking. Um, my only you know pause there is when you look at the investment community. Um, I think there's some folks who will take those numbers in December and then extrapolate them into next year, multiply them by twelve, and that's clearly not going to happen, right? Uh, when you go into uh, you know, January, those numbers will come back some and so on and so forth. So we'll see how it plays out for the year. But you know, Boeing clearly did have a very strong December. Uh, my understanding is they actually didn't shut down over Christmas for deliveries. And um, they were, you know, at least in the, the, the delivery portion of the company, they were working hard through the holiday uh, to get uh, aircraft out the door. Uh, and on uh, the FAA issue, uh, big deal, little deal, sort of deal, doesn't it contribute to this whole sense uh, of the U.S. air travel system being maxed out? You know, if you want to travel uh, anywhere domestically, you'll be delayed. And well, you know, I mean, I mean it, what's 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 always sort of astounded me, and you know, I, I, you know, obviously, I mean, I don't follow the FAA, but you know, the FAA has always kind of struggled. Uh, you're you're in and you're out for its you know reauthorization and so on and so forth. Um, so I would argue it probably points to a little bit of underfunding in the FAA, ultimately, over a longer term period of time. Um, but I mean, you know, was it, did it turn around pretty quick? It did. I mean, I know it's inconvenient and I know it was a couple hours, but it wasn't a couple days, um, so on and so forth. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to belittle it, but, you know, sadly, those things will happen. Um, but I, I think it does augur for maybe more, a little more focus on funding the FAA and, and, and that sort of thing, which in the current environment, who knows what's going to happen on the hill with that one. Um, but uh, that's that's my sense. But ultimately, I don't think it's that big a deal. Richard, your take on both Boeing and FAA? Yeah, you know, obviously, I agree with Ron, not that big a deal. It's just, unfortunately, we have this cobbled together system of old and new systems and uh, inadequate funding for investment and upgrade and a lack of consensus, consensus on what needs to be done. And this uh, this NOTAM system, however, I would say, you know, kind of points out that we do pro- we do a pretty good job of prioritizing safety because it's it, it wasn't a, you know, a truly flight critical system. It's not like we lost sight of all jetliners and the air traffic controllers are going wild. It's simply an ability to reach people in air and, and send notices, which is which is a wonderful system. Um, maybe it should be upgraded or replaced with something modern, but obviously it's it still speaks to the, the level of safety in the system. Um, but, you know, not that big a deal, just major hassles for everyone involved. As for Boeing, uh, yeah, of course, uh, you know, Ron's right. It was uh, obviously they worked very hard in December and it might be difficult to keep that drumbeat going. I was sort of interested on the military side of things that things seemed a little anemic, you know, on the Super Hornet and F-15, it was about one a month. Um, you know, or, and, and, you know, they've, they've got a decent U.S. Navy backlog, not huge, but I would have thought they would have gotten a few more F-18s out the door. And, uh, you know, over on the F-15, of course, you've got the start of the U.S. Air Force program and the Cotter planes uh, in delivery. So, uh, it's, again, one per month just seemed a little light. Uh, Apache is roughly in line with expectations, um, you know, and, Obviously, uh, well, actually, one, one other half of you, news, bit of news, they actually did deliver the first four MH-139s, and that program has been plagued with all sorts of delays and problems. So there were some happy uh, happy spots in the, in the numbers. 
Um, and, and obviously, uh, that's a, originally the Grey Wolf, the originally Leonardo uh, airplane for uh, servicing right. missile fields, uh, which, which, was, which was an important win for uh, both companies. Um, is it supply chain you think that's the issue? I mean, what's, what's constraining the ability to deliver here, ultimately? Yeah, you know, supply chain and workforce, ultimately, those are the, the big issues. Um, you know, you've had everything from uh, from materials to coatings and, and, and castings and forgings and everything, but probably just heavily comes down to, to the human element. And that's true for both the supply chain and for uh, and for uh, the final assembly facilities. The, the cadence with which you said that, Richard, was like lions and tigers and bears. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> there's the uh, there's the chainsaw, you know, the supply chain demon with the chainsaw, the supply chain one? gremlin, gremlin. We should use gremlin. Can I add um, one comment to that? Sure. I, I still think the biggest risk into 23 is supply chain. Um, I think there's this view in the investment community that it's better um it in some areas might be getting better but the single biggest challenge in 2023 i think across our sector will be both aerospace and defense workforce um you, you can talk to the smallest machine shop all the way up to very large companies and they'll tell you they're probably understaffed by at least 20 percent, and they're they're struggling to get people they're struggling to train, to train people uh and that'll be i think the single biggest hurdle and the thing that just the single biggest throttle to what the industry can do is just the availability of uh, skilled labor. And if I could just add to that, you know, um, people are looking at the sort of uh, the sort of tech sector of the economy, saying that you know, well, we appear to be having an employment meltdown on the tech side, and that's for many different reasons. But we might be witnessing the start of something equivalent to that on the aerospace side. The sort of new aerospace companies that, not all of them, certainly not all, you know, advanced air mobility or whatever else companies deserve to die. But a lot of them need to go away because they've been absorbing an awful lot of people. And uh, I think it was uh, one of the, one of the uh, broader economy commentators who said about some of the, the sort of startup tech companies that were going bust. And I was like, you know, if these folks went out and got jobs in the actual productive member, productive members are part of the economy, aggregate productivity would probably go up. That would be good. And I'm thinking that there are a bunch of companies that if they if they went away, those engineers could be very easily employed at uh, Northrop Grumman or Lockheed Martin or whoever right. else. And in general, aggregate productivity would go up. Those people are needed. So, you know, again, some of the new start companies I, I'm, I'm thrilled about. I hope they survive. But there are a bunch that are merely existing to suck up cash and take workers that are needed elsewhere. Um, I uh, want to point out right uh, in the Washington, D.C. area on every construction site or many construction sites, uh, you know, we want bricklayers. Uh, and we talked to, um, uh, as I mentioned, Chris Kastner of HII, but also Vice Admiral Bill Galinas, Commander of the Naval Sea Systems Command. Uh, and, you know, they talk about the demand, you know, so it's not just on uh, the, in private industry, but also public uh, shipyards, uh, the challenge of having that uh, talent, uh, especially as they look at a retirement bulge coming at them. Uh, and an aging out of the workforce, right? So you want to bring a new generation of people in. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was interesting, uh, Ron, uh, that Chris's point was that he's less concerned, for, at least on the shipbuilding side of things, about 
supply chain than he was a year ago. You know, he said it was a bigger challenge a year ago than it is now. So I thought that's an interesting uh, data point. Ron, I want to go to Space Launch and Virgin uh, Orbital. Um, first launch from uh, UK soil, even though UK did put a satellite into orbit uh, many years ago. It did so from Australia, not from UK soil. The uh, space uh, rocket was carrying uh, nine small satellites, Britain obviously pushing very hard to get in the space launch business. W once upon a time, it wasn't in the right place to put satellites into the right kinds of orbits, whereas now with things like uh, a 747 carrying a rocket too high altitude and launching it and certainly putting things into polar orbit, UK becomes more attractive. And I think it's six, if if Sash was with us, it's six or seven uh, places are in contention. I apologize if I got that number right either way. Uh, uh, spaceports ar around the country. Talk to us about what this failure really means because SpaceX has had failure. Everybody has failures in the rocket launch business. Anyway, what, what, how, should, how should folks be looking at this uh, failure at this time uh, and what it means? Yeah, I mean, you know, rockets do fail. I mean, it's just a, it's a fact, right? I mean, it's just how it goes, and, uh, and you know, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, it's, it's, it's the way it goes. Um, you know, for a startup company, it's more meaningful, obviously, right? Because you know, their balance sheet and so on and so forth is is more fragile than you know, say NASA's balance sheet, the United States government, uh, or SpaceX's or somebody else's. Uh, but, but it happens, and um, I think you have to view it in, in, in that. In that light, um, they've had uh, several successful launches, uh, and then the key thing is just to look on a go-forward basis. You know, what's the frequency of failure, predictability, so on and so forth. Um, they'll learn from this um, uh, and 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 move on. So, you know, I don't want to say it's not a big deal because obviously for Virgin Orbit at the time it's a very big deal, um, but it's just part of the business, and um, they'll they'll move forward from it. And uh, you know, it's a unique business what they do. They they offer countries that like. Like you mentioned, and the ability to get something into orbit from a part of the world where maybe you, you wouldn't want to, or it'd be very difficult to. Um, so uh, that's that's my sense of what's going on there. It's interesting, you know. It it's a British company, but it's actually an American company. It's based uh, in California, uh, and. Uh, I, I think it's kind of interesting how some people have turned this into a trope of, you know, really negative. Britain is a country with a tremendous reputation for engineering. It, it made for a whole bunch of bad reasons a decision not to play as prominently in space, even if some of its technology does play very prominently in space, right? I mean, so it might not be launching the rockets, but its SMEs play a critical role throughout the ecosystem. And so anyway, it's, it is just unfortunate. Uh, as opposed to looking at it, looking at it the way we should look at it, which is whether it's SpaceX, whether it's NASA, whether it's Boeing or Lockheed or ULA, you know, everybody ultimately has their failures uh, before before they get to success. Um, all right, uh, Richard, I want to go to uh, F-35 uh, radar, um, would like briefly uh, to talk about the war uh, and and specifically Carlos del Toro's point, um, the Navy secretary made a controversial or a statement that was regarded briefly in the Twitter sphere as controversial uh, and, and criticized by some that, hey, if this war goes on for another six months, it's the, you know, uh, you know, it's the U.S. Navy that's going to need help. Um, you know, all sorts of questions on that. But the Navy is supplying sea sparrows to the uh, Ukrainians or started to do so uh, to improve its air defense capabilities and where we are in the state of the manufacturing and an industrial base beyond the delivery of, of tanks. But Richard, take us away on the F-35 radar news, which is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And of course, um, you know, it joins the 
big engine question with AETP and, and whether or not, uh, you know, the F-35 um, will get a new engine. It looks like it will get a new radar, which might be somewhat less disruptive because there's no competitive issues there. It's just a question of Northrop Grumman changing horses and creating something new. But then, of course, you've got Block 4 on top of that. And, you know, I, obviously the, the overall impression is that, hey, this is a work in progress. <laughs> we, we don't know the extent of uh, retrofitability. Um, that's a big issue uh, moving forward. We don't know whether that's going to impact sales, both at home and abroad. Uh, maybe keep, you know, I just like the, the Air Force and others have said, well, we're going to, you know, keep funding limited while we wait for the Block 4 version. Maybe you'll see in a couple of years people, including the Air Force, say, well, let's wait till the new radar comes online. And of course, we don't know the, uh, the extent of the, you know, the improvements offered by the new radar, different modes, of course, you know, different capabilities. Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uncertainties introduced. On the positive side, it does show a commitment to the product. You know, I think there's this been this risk looking at the F-35 program, that ah, funding and attention is going to be shifted towards NGAD in sixth generation. There'll be all sorts of capabilities. What's going to become of the stuff that's, you know, in production now, especially F-35. This implies a commitment towards funding the kind of improvements that keep it relevant and competitive. So I think there's on balance more good news for the program uh, associated with this radar announcement than, than bad. Uh, and uh, we should point out, right, it was in uh, last year at the Air uh, Warfare uh, Symposium uh, that Air Force Secretary Kendall did mention that, you know, there's going to be a high-low mix. The F-35 is the low of that high-low mix, and the high is going to be the NGAD when it gets out there. So it's going to be the backbone of the fighter force uh, for a long time. And obviously, when you mention AETP as the advanced engine, uh, advanced, uh, the adaptive engine propulsion technology, have I got that right, AETP uh, program? Uh, which right. is to develop a better uh, engine for the future. Uh, General Electric uh, GE Aerospace is on one side with the XA100 and Pratt & Whitney is on the other with the XA101, uh, as well as, I think, an update of the F-135 uh, engine uh, in, in terms of, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and General Electric touts that it has the world's first adaptive three-cycle uh, engine. Um, uh, you know, more power. And the idea of the program is, more power, more acceleration, more cooling, cooling, more efficient crews, uh, and and ultimately, you know, more range uh, out of out of the engine and 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 uh, less maintenance. Right? I mean, the, the part of the challenge uh, has been uh, with uh, higher maintenance load uh, a little bit with the with the one thirty five uh, and reliability issues. Um, Ron, let me uh, go over to you about what uh, Carlos del Toro said. I mean, obviously, uh, the Western Alliance coming out with uh, more capability. Uh, and now Britain, as usual, is is leading, um, you know, always opens the door to capabilities, sending ch 12 Challenger tanks, uh, obviously one of the finest combat vehicles in the world. United States looking at M1s, Germans looking at uh, Leopards uh, or Leopards, uh, as the Germans would say. Um where are we industrial base wide, right? I mean, one of the whys, one of the criticisms has been we're not replenishing things as quickly as we can. Obviously, DOD, you know, it doesn't, you know, you, you could see that, okay, we're using large inventories of this stuff for some, these inventories won't be particular, you know, the Javelin uh, and, and a couple of these capabilities may not be as useful in a Pacific uh, context as regarded by some. Uh, on, the, on others, they make the case, hey, look, there's no reason for us to be building 1990s weapons 
2023, right? We should go to a new generation. There were supply chain issues. Anyway, more broadly, where are we as the Pentagon, right? The nature of the contracts and the investment that we're seeing to try to, to, to get us there. And, and also, if you have any F-35 or engine comment, feel free to make that as well. Yeah, I mean, my, my sense is um, on the replenishment of the inventories, we're clearly behind. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion on that. Um, we've seen more uh, contracts being announced by the FAA, uh, uh, excuse me, more contracts being announced by the DOD um, on the replenishment of various things. But if you go to a year ago, just you know, a year, year and a half ago, none of this was in the cards in terms of defense planning. Uh, and and you know, my sense is a bigger question is it's not just you want to replace it with the same technology, but even if you do replace it with the same technology, if you had 10 of these in the drawer before, do you want 12, 13, 14, 15, do you want even more, or, or what's the right level for that? So um, you're starting to see some acceleration in it, but clearly, clearly we're behind. Uh, so that's uh, a tailwind, if you will, for the industry that we'll see accelerate through 2023 probably in the 24 and maybe even 25, uh, depending on how long things, uh, things take. Uh, and then on the, on the engine uh, competition, it's a, it's, a, it's a complicated question, right? I mean, do you, do you want to spend the money on a new engine for F-35 where you could potentially do an upgrade to the current engine that gets you at least part of the way there and then take some of that money and invest it in, whatever is going to be the propulsion system for, for NGAD uh, and so on and so forth. So I think it's, you know, given you know, how classified everything is on NGAD, there's not a lot of clarity there. But, you know, it's not obvious to me that you're, you're going to want to re-engine you know, the F-35s now. I mean, the, the, the radar seems almost, not, I don't want to say this exactly, but kind of like a no-brainer, why not? Uh, but but the engine decision, I think, is a little more complicated, how it dovetails in with the decision around NGAD. So let, let me just ask you something, though, if uh, w- w- without prejudicing it one way or the other, right? I mean, these are two highly qualified uh, engine makers. Uh, yeah, I mean, legendary, um, whether on the Pratt side or the GE side. Um, if, if you have an engine at a time when range is more important and the number one criticism about the F-35 is its range, wouldn't you want an engine that could give it 30% more range, more cooling, better cruising, better combat power? Because no airplane in history ever became lighter as it became older. And if you're already sort of tapping out uh, on power, on cooling, on power generation, what, you know, and I'm not, I'm not prejudicing the F-135. The F-135 is a great engine. It was just, right, I mean, the whole airplane has gotten heavier over over time i mean at some point don't you have to do that in order to keep it relevant it's funny how airplanes are kind of like people um (laughs) uh, at least me um the uh yeah if you can if you can really get i unfortunately can't change my engine ron i wish i could do that that would be an easy upgrade i'd go for that (laughs) yeah 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 me too um you know you have to think about it it's it's in a constrained space. Yeah, of course, if you can get more range, you say 30% more range, if you can really do that and get all the benefits, um, it might be worth doing, but you're, 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 you're constrained by resources. So is it, you know, if you can get 20% out of an upgraded F-135, is that, a, is that enough or not, right? I mean, so I think that's what the decision ultimately comes down to because if, 
if you look on, as we all know, on the, you know, the, the DOD's bill of things they got to do, it's, it's not just F-35. I mean, there's NGAD, there's all the big strategic programs and so on and so forth. So right. um, if you can get that performance and you can do it in a way that it's, you know, resource allowable, of course, you'll, you'll make that decision all day long to go that way. But it, you have to make it within the bounds of, of your resources and what, what was the cost going to be and um, is, you know, the, the cost per what you gain worth it over an upgraded existing engine and so on and so forth. Uh, but if you can do it, sure, you, 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 all day long, you'd, you'd make that decision. Yeah. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, sorry that Sash couldn't make it this time, but look forward for, uh, for the whole team uh, to be back together again next week. Thanks so much. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, as always, enjoyed it. Thanks, Vago. And bon voyage uh, to you both. All the best. Have a great uh, day, uh, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot.